As we all gather here, no matter where you're from, no matter whether you're from Georgia or you're from some other place, maybe you're outside of the country, if you're part of the body of Christ, then there is a connection that you have to people. And that connection isn't always an easy thing to contend with because all of us have our challenges, right? Look to the person to the left of you, look to the person to the right of you, and say, it's not me, it's you. <laughs> you, you got the challenges, I don't. You're just lucky to be in my world because I'm going to help you. And what we want to talk about today is really helping one another. And to do that, we've got to learn what it means to be merciful. I want to look at mercy today. And to help us set up the idea of what mercy is, uh, I want to just, it's the beginning of a new year. And as we move into this new year, um, Tuesday night I spoke to the prayer meeting. And Wednesday morning I spoke to the staff. And I reminded everybody of a passage of scripture that Paul He said something to the church in Corinth in the second book of Corinthians in the 13th chapter. At the end of the book, he charges the people in Corinth in the fifth verse. He says, he says, examine where you are in your faith. And he goes on to talk about the fact that Jesus is with us. And if Jesus is with us, then the test of us being in true faith is that we're like him in what we do. Now, when we think about being like him in what we do, we got to look back over this past year. We can sing songs. We can come in here and he keeps blessing me. He keeps blessing me. Like I was watching people stand up and how excited people were to be able to sing that song because how many of you in this past year experienced the blessing of God? I did. I was kind of, my head was bobbing, my foot was pounding. I'm like, yeah, God is good. The good God all the time. God is good. But for him to be good to me and for him to be good to you, he's first of all got to be merciful. You don't know the goodness of God apart from his mercy. In fact, mercy, I would say, is the expression of what God's love practically means to a people that are fallen. If I'm going to know God, the first way that I do it is that mercy is that he covers me over. He doesn't give me what I deserve. Instead, he covers me over and then he gives me what I don't deserve. Mercy is the expression of God that says, I know what you are. I know what you've done. How many of you would like for us to project from your head onto the screen all the dark highlights of your 2022? Beginning with me, we run for the door. But the truth is, those things, whatever they were, however many times you struggled with the same besetting sin or the wrong attitude or the the, the idea that that person did that to me and I'm going to get them even if I just talk about them. Those become expressions of us really not being like the one that we say we worship. If we're going to be like him, Jesus said, be like your father in heaven. He's merciful. Be like him. And if you're like him, you're going you're gonna to look to give all that you can to people and covering over what they've done that's off and wrong and the things that instead of gossiping about them, saying, did you hear what they did? Did you hear how they got jammed up? Wow, wow. Let's sit in judgment on them and talk about what, uh, what poor Christians they are. But then by virtue of you talking about what a poor Christian they are, you're a poor Christian yourself. Mercy is the building block of relationship. It's what God has used to build relationship with me and you. And it's what we delight in, hopefully, so that we, out of the love that we receive because of that mercy, we begin to build relationships around us. God is merciful. Mercies are new every morning. And imagine in the morning, God, as we wake up, he waits. The Bible says he delights in mercy. 
Now, as I'm challenging you about examining your faith, do you actually delight in covering people over? Or do you delight in exposing them? Do you delight in covering people over? Amen? Yeah, we want to say amen to the other. We kind of delight in like, I, I know what Ramona did. Did you, did you see it? Did you hear about it? Let's pray for her. You try to spiritualize it. The truth is, none of us naturally, no one in this room, delights in mercy. It's something that we have to trust God for. It's not even anything we can produce. It's something he produces in us because his life as a Christian is in us. If you're not a Christian, you might kind of act like you're able to be merciful, but you can't be merciful unless you've first known mercy. You can never give what you've never received. Mercy is something that you give because you know what it is to be forgiven by God. You know what it is because of that covering over to receive his love. And if you've never received that love, you can't, as I said, you can't give what you haven't got. But in the morning, God wakes up and he delights to cover us over. He actually looks for opportunities. Oh, they're going to mess up. Teresa's going to mess up today. How can I cover her over? I mean, imagine that. That's God's take on you and I. Is that your take on your spouse? Is that your take on your kid? Is that your take on your coworker, your boss? Are these things that you delight to do? I pray that by the time we get to the end of this, we'll position ourselves that that will become more of our norm in 2023 than it was in 2022. We have to be a people who are like him. We have to be a people who delight in mercy. So to help us try to give some attention scripturally to where we go with that and how we, get in the begin, how we begin to build on that, I want to give some attention to a passage of scripture that comes out of, comes out of the 18th chapter of Matthew. And I'm just going to read two verses initially. It starts off in verse 21. Before we start, let me just take a second. God, your word is alive. You say it is. And we come here today to look to you, to to worship you, to celebrate who you are and what you've done. And as we're looking at this word, God, I'm asking you, I'm just a guy, I can't persuade anybody, but would you use the things that we're going to talk about? Would you help us to hear what you would say? Would you help us, more importantly, to trust you for what that means? That we might live and that we might honor you with our lives. Pray that you would do it. Jesus' name. You all said, amen. Amen. Got to be excited for the word of God. Are you excited to hear from what God says today? I hope so, because it's life. And beginning with verse 21 in chapter 18, it says this, Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? He says seven times there because uh, the rabbinical teaching in the day was you just had to forgive somebody three times. If somebody, after they continued, imagine this, how many spouses would still be married here today if we didn't live with some mercy? Because if, in rabbinical teaching, if somebody repented three times against you and like, okay, I'm sorry I did that. I'm sorry I did it again. I'm sorry I did it again. You finally go, you know what? You're not changing in your repentance. You could just do away with them and just move on with your life. Who in the world would be in relationship? Nobody. So Peter feels like he's being pretty impressive by saying, how about seven times? Like the, the, the rabbis, the guys who are supposed to know something about something, they say it's just three times that we're obligated to forgive. What do you, what do you think, Jesus? Seven times? Is that a good number? Seven in the Old Testament uh, to the mindset that Peter had was a number of completion. It was a number of perfection. So he's actually like one-upping the Pharisees by saying, what do you think about this? Jesus has a reply. He says, no, not seven times, but seven times 70. How about that? 
Jesus takes a number and he multiplies it in a way where he goes way beyond what we would even, how do you even begin to count to like that number? You, you think seven times 70, oh, that's like 490. So now think about what Peter's trying to do. It's what we all do. He's trying to be mathematical. He's trying to figure out by the law when he doesn't have to continue to struggle with the, the challenge of being merciful and loving to people because it gets, it gets tiring. It wears you out, doesn't it? It wears all of us out. And so you start to go, can I just get to an end of this? Because I want to be able to move on and check out so that I don't have to continue to strain under the burden of putting up with you. But imagine Jesus goes, if you're going to like try to calculate this, how about just 490? Imagine your beard now has to walk around with Judas. He's got to walk around with a little scroll that he opens up every time Judas does something wrong. He marks it down and he goes for 10 and he goes for 20. And now he's up to like 300. Then he's up to like 400. And by the, by the time you get to like 490, you've created, by trying to count it out, you've actually gotten into a habit of it, right? Probably just like it doesn't even matter anymore. I just got to forgive the guy and move on. God's trying to create a mindset in me and you in this new year that we have to be we have to live a lifestyle of mercy. We're talking today about lifestyles of mercy. And we need it as individuals in our families, in our marriages. We need it with our kids. We need it here. Because look, look at that person to the left, that person to the right. They are not Jesus. You know what that means? They're going to fail you. They're going to hurt you. They're going to live like you do in a selfish way. And in that selfish way that they position themselves, it's going to come at your expense. And it's going to have pain that's associated with it. And God is saying, you know what I need you to do? I need you to forgive. I need you to get into a rhythm of forgiving. But how in the world do you live out a lifestyle like that? Because left in the natural, that's absolutely impossible. I can't produce it. You can't produce it. Just think about 2022, right? How many, how many times did you hit the wall and go, yeah, I'm done? Let me tell you about you. <laughs> Let me tell you what I think about you. You get angry, you get judgmental, you try to do what you can to maybe even turn the screws on somebody once or twice. God is saying, no, 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 no. If you're going to be like me, you've got to be merciful. And when I'm working right in you, that's exactly what will happen. So as he goes on to try to explain to him, this is, this is context. Jesus, let me just rewind for a second. Context of even Jesus responding to Peter, Jesus was already teaching the disciples about what that ugly reality looks like when you're living with other people as believers and they're affecting you and they're sinning against you. He gives them a a prescription. He says, this is what you do. First, if somebody offends you, if you rewind, and I encourage you to go back to read the whole chapter 18 uh, today, it'll be an encouragement to you. But as you read the preceding verses, he says, if somebody hurts you, and I wish as a church we would do this. If you're a member of the Brooklyn Tabernacle, you consider this your home. And somebody beginning with the pastors, beginning with the pastors, beginning with Pastor Simbola, beginning with Pastor Hammond, beginning with me, beginning with Pastor Lincoln, if we ever do anything to hurt you, it's not because we're waking up in the morning plotting and strategizing how do we offend somebody. We're waking up. We love God. But guess what? I have my blind spots, and so do you, and so do the pastors. And as we're trying to do the best that we can before God, does it ever come across in a way that could offend somebody? Absolutely, it does. But if it does, this is what I've seen play out so many times in this church. People who sit here week in and week out, people who can sing on the platform, people that can be deeply involved in ministry, they get offended, they don't go biblical. Instead, they, they, they play into their flesh. 
They're not going to talk about it to the person that offended them. They're going to go to the people around them and be like, you know what that guy did to me? Listen, you don't have a right to tell anybody else about your offense until first you tell the person who's offended you. That's the Bible. Can we say amen to that? I'm telling you, that's why when Jesus is addressing here, he's saying, you have a problem. You, you go to the person. You make it right. That's the first thing you do. You go to them. You make it right. You tell them what they've done. You confront them. It takes a little courage. It takes a little boldness. It puts, means putting you, yourself out there and like, oh my gosh, I don't like tension. I don't like what they, maybe they'll yell at me. Maybe they'll think poorly of me because maybe I'm just a cupcake in the issues I'm taking offense with and I, whatever the issues might be. People retreat from it because they don't like confrontation. But God is saying you can't be a part of the body of Christ and not be confrontational because you're sinners. You have to call each other out. It's how we grow. If Nicolene offends me and I say, hey, Nicolene, this is how you offended me. Then if it's biblical, like she she loves God, she's going to go, Brian, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Please forgive me. Don't let that be something that stands in the way of us. And guess what? Now we've, we've deepened our relationship because now she understands the things that I might be sensitive to that might not be sensitive to her, but because I've been through what I've been through, that's my sensitivity. So I go, uh, yeah, now, now you know how to better relate to me. It brings us closer together in intimacy. Yeah. There's beauty. There's beauty in dealing with it biblically. That's why Jesus prescribes it. But then oftentimes, you know, you can go to somebody and they've got their perspective and you've got yours. And I go, hey, William, you know, when you called me what you called me last week, that was just terrible. And how do you, how do you call a brother that? He's like, shoot, I called my blood brothers worse. Don't be, don't be such a cupcake. Like, I'm not, I don't owe you an apology. Just get over it. Why don't you get some thick skin? And I go, I know, but you talked about my mama. I'm supposed to honor my mama. You're supposed to honor my mama too. You can't be talking about my mama like that. Oh, that's just your problem. And then I go, no, 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 that's, that's not right. Pastor Lincoln, could you just come with me? We got to sit and talk with this brother because he thinks that calling my mama names is okay. Is that, is that okay? Can we get an objective party here? The second step is you got to bring somebody else into it. And then before I'd go to a pastor, maybe you just go to a friend. Maybe, maybe his wife heard him call my mama what he called me. And I call, hey, Emory, you were there. Emory, is that right? That's not right, is it? I mean, I know you live with him and you got to go through life with him, but can we just stand on the side of what's true? Is it right to talk about that? You know what? It's not. William, you're wrong for saying that. Now, now we're, now we're all on the same page. They know I got a sensitivity toward my mama. But let's say the both of them go, no, 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 no. You, listen, you're just whatever. Then I go to Pastor Lincoln and I go, Pastor Lincoln, let's use some biblical weight on this. We need somebody to objectively weigh in here and say, this is the word of God. To do that is, it violates God's word in this way. So you're absolutely wrong. You're going to repent now. Well, the church can't apply that kind of pressure on me. Oh, yes, we can. Well, that's controlling. That's, that's terrible. How dare you make somebody feel bad for doing something wrong? If what you're doing in sin is affecting other people in sin and it's affecting our ability and unity to love one another, pastors absolutely have that obligation to weigh in, not to try to lord over anybody, but just to hold people to a standard of what's right and true in God. Because in his words of life, that's where, in his words of truth, that's where life is found. So we all have to, we all have to buy into it. That's why we're preaching from the word of God. I'm not giving you my opinion today. I'm trying to build you up in what's right and true so that we can all live together in a way where God's blessing. We can sing about it. And it's not just a song. It's something that comes from the depth of our being. And we can sing in harmony like this is true. Look how God is good. He's been. Amen. 
So when Peter comes along, this is the context that he's saying it to. He's saying it because God gets all of us living together becomes very kind of challenging. And so he's saying lifestyle is where we got to go with this. But as he's talking about the lifestyle, he goes, I'm going to teach you a parable. You know, Jesus told stories because stories are memorable. Stories are things that we can walk away. I might not be able to quote chapter and verse, but I can go, oh, yeah, he told a story about a guy that was really rich. He was kind of the, the master and the king of all. And you start to tell the story, you're gonna, it's going to stick with you. And the truths about it, you'll be able to reflect on and it'll continue to encourage you after you've heard the story. So let's read the story real quick. It says this, starting in verse 23. Therefore, the, king, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date. Notice, God's bringing accounts up to date. Let's figure out what that means. With servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought to him who owed him millions of dollars. In the original language, it talks about 10,000 talents. And in um, terms for that day, 10,000 talents was a whole lot of money. Because all of Palestine in that day was taxed, the whole country, by Rome, 800 talents for a year. This is 10,000 talents. That's like 12 times their GDP or GNP, whichever it is. That's a lot of money. So they owed him a whole lot of money, which would hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, not just millions of dollars. He couldn't pay it. So his master, because justice demands accounts to be settled, no accountant is going to balance books. How many of you are an accountant in here? How many of you like, there's a few of you. You're not going to balance a book. And go, ah, it's just, you know, it's not a couple of pennies. It's just a couple hundred million dollars. What's the big deal? Don't worry about it. Just no big deal. That wouldn't be very just to the shareholders. It wouldn't be very just to the people that are supposed to be working within the context of how this thing is getting adjudicated. So his master ordered him to be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything that he owned to pay the debt. The debt's going to get paid. Say this, the debt is going to be paid. Someone's paying it. We're going to come back to that. But the man fell down before his master and he begged, please, please be patient with me. Maybe it was through tears. Maybe it was through crying. He says, I will pay the debt. How much faith would you have in a guy that says he could pay the debt? This guy just put together all of Palestine's taxes for a year and multiplied it by like almost 12. And he's like, you can trust me. I'm going to get you the money. (laughs) You just got us in this hole. You don't handle finances well. And yet I'm supposed to trust that you're going to actually be able to take care of yourself. That's, that's a pipe dream. That's wishful thinking. Then his master, filled with pity because he knew he couldn't pay it back and knew the thing had to be settled somehow, filled with pity for him, released him, and forgave him of his debt. So the master forgives him and of the debt. But it's not a write-off because we're going to see Jesus paid a debt that we could never pay ourselves. But when that man left the king, he went to follow a servant who owed him a few thousand dollars, a couple days worth of work. He grabbed him by the throat. Look at the anger. And he demanded, I insist you pay right now. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more. Please be patient with me, just like he did. Maybe he was crying. I'll pay it. Please, please. He pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put into prison until his debt could be paid in full. That's something, isn't it? Hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. You'd think you'd come out of that place of blessing and just be like, drinks on everyone, drinks are on me. Like, let's go. I'm taking care of everything. You you would think there would be some measure of 
effect that it would have on you where you would just be taking care of everybody. I got your bill. Don't worry about it. You owe me something? Forget it. Nope. When the other servants saw this, we're all pretty smart, right? When somebody takes advantage of somebody, we don't like it. And this guy took advantage of the grace that he had been given. And the servants that saw it, they were upset. They went to the king and they told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, you evil servant. God calls evil receiving mercy and not giving it. Evil. Jesus' words, not mine. You evil servant. I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pled with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servants? There's an expectation. If you've received mercy in this place today, God has an expectation on you that you live in mercy. What I'm saying today isn't my expectation for this church. What I'm saying today is God's expectation for all of us. If you're a Christian, you've been born again. He's changed your life. He's filled you because of his mercy with his love. And his expectation on all of us today is we have to be a people of mercy. Just as I had mercy on you. Then the angry king, see, he's angry. He's not just calling it evil. He's, like, he's upset about this. He's angry. The king, God gets angry? He does. He's right in his anger. Then the angry king sent the man to prison and tortured him until he had paid the entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you. If you refuse, notice, if you refuse to forgive, it's a choice. So right now, even as this is being said, there's people who are registering this comments and you're like, you don't know what I've been through. You have no idea the horror that's been imposed on my life. I would tell you this from my own experience and from counseling thousands of people over the years. I've heard everything. I might have a better understanding of the horrors that you've been through than maybe the person sitting next to you. But Jesus says it's a choice. Forgiveness doesn't have to do with what's been done to you. Forgiveness has to do with the choice you choose to make with the situation that you've been given. Nobody, listen, nobody in this world signed up for the life that they were given. But all of us are completely before God responsible for the choice that we make to respond to it. We all have a choice today. And you can choose today to live out of freedom, or I'm sorry, in freedom and out of prison or to stay enchained and shackled in a way that is a prison of your own making. If you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from the heart. So here we go. Let's just recap real quick. So there's a debt and somebody's paying it. And there's a God behind that debt that longs to be merciful. He has pity and compassion on the way that we spend our lives and get ourselves indebted before him. And he's willing to let the thing go. But in letting it go, he has an expectation as you walk out the door to live in the way that you've been treated, to show others the same kind of love that you've received. Freely you've received, freely you must give. But the challenge is, this is where rubber meets road, you look back over 2022, you look over your life, and you go, am I like this guy in the story? Do I receive incredible mercy and then fail to show it to somebody else? Because that's possible. That guy received an incredible cancellation, and he went for someone's throat. And we can shake our heads at that and go, that's not me. We'll get to that in a second. Maybe it is more you than you're even aware of, or maybe you'd like to admit. But if that's the case, you make a choice to not let things go. You're creating a prison for yourself that God wants you to be rescued from. That's why Jesus came. So let's just talk about the first point. First question is, who's paying the debt? From the story, if you were paying attention, who was trying to pay the debt? The guy, he says, I got this. Even though I've amassed this incredible uh, debt, I can take care of it. 
When did that start? I don't know. But to rack up $300 million plus dollars worth of debt, he had to start early on. Like you and I, we, we born into the world, somebody slaps us and we start taking it personal. And we realize in that moment, I got I to gotta guard myself. And so then we double down and we figure out I'm going through life and I'm putting me first because I don't want to get slapped too many times in the future. And as we live for ourselves, we begin to find more and more deposits that are put into our account where we elevate ourselves above everything. And it might start off slow because we're little kids, but like an investment that you can make, I started a 401k, you know, however long ago and here at the church, uh, putting a little money in every month. I looked the other day, I got a statement at the end of the year and I'm like, how in the world did that happen? It just starts to compound itself. Interest starts to build. And before you know it, one year after another, one day, decade after another, the thing starts to multiply. And like you and I, in our sin, before you know it, we're standing before a God who looks and goes, this is serious. This is serious. You have an account that you'll never be able to pay off. No, 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 God. I, I got the account. I might be $300 million in debt. I may be responsible for the, 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 the mess that I've made here. But I can, I can take care of this. Do you know every religion in the world? See, I, I would distinguish Christianity from religion because it's about relationship. I grew up Catholic, and in the Catholic Church, if you're going to be right with God, you have to go through the sacraments. You've got to take communion. You've got to go through all the, the, the processes that they say are part of in, in inspiring and building your faith. And if you go through them faithfully, there's no guarantee still that you're going to go straight to heaven. You may have to spend a little time in purgatory to get the whole thing purged out. But there is no real guarantee, like, I'm going to see Jesus face to face. I'm not just looking to some saint who died 2,000 years ago that we can call a saint. Like, I am a saint because Jesus has made me a saint, not because of anything I've done, but because of all that he's done. And I don't have to try to measure up and become something that will hopefully tip the scale of justice and I might, I might be favored as a result. I've talked to people in Islam. I've talked to people in Judaism. It's the same thing. Religions can be, and you can be religious and come to the Brooklyn Tabernacle. You can be religious and come here. You can become very religious even being here sitting in our, our service. You know, I come to the church on Sundays. I come on Tuesday nights. I'm involved in whatever ministry. I, I go to Keepers of God's House. I'm a part of BT Kids. I, I, I host this ministry. Like, these things are good. But these things make no difference before God. They don't do anything for your, your scales. Like they don't add to anything. God isn't interested in religion. He's not interested in our attempt to try to make ourselves, because all of us know, the Bible says, eternity is in each one of our hearts. That's why there's so many different forms of religion. It's just different people trying to figure it out in a way because all of us kind of collectively know there's a God on the other side of this, and we want to make sure we're right before we meet him. And so let's do things that we think are right to help get us there. And Jesus is going bankrupt. You can never pay it. It's a waste of your time. And he actually has pity on us. He looks at us and goes, how, how silly. Like you actually think you're going to, in your effort as a sinner, imagine this in the Bible says, our, our righteousness, like our right standing, our best effort to be holy like God. He says, we don't get this, but before a God who's so different than anything we can understand, he says that your holiness, that your attempts to become righteous are like filthy, his words, not mine. It's a picture, filthy minstrel rag. Wow. That, that makes all of us just kind of go, what? Then what's the point? 
right? The whole point of the law and the whole point of the commandments is to say to you and I, with the debt that you have, you can never live up to it. God doesn't have an expectation that you would. He's saying, just acknowledge your bankruptcy and say, mercy, pity me. I can't save myself. And so God knew many of us would have that in our heart and would begin to look to him for a solution that he would offer. And so he sent it in the form of his son. The treasure of heaven became flesh. We just, we just celebrated Christmas. God became flesh. The, the, the worth, I mean, imagine. It's so crazy that God would take on flesh, that he would come into our world, that he would engage our experience, and that he would live in such a way that in his account before God, with everything that he did in his thoughts, in his actions, that he would honor God, and it would put credit to his account as a man, that when he went to a cross to offer up himself to become the substitution for our lives, Jesus gave himself and gave all that he was in his perfection and in his holiness. He gave it to pay the debt account you have before God. You can never do it. He did it on your behalf. He came, the Bible says it was the joy that was before him. He came excited to do it. He came like, you're stuck, but I'm going to get you unstuck. Would you look to me and trust me and and put your confidence that I'm going to pay your debt and buy his blood? The riches of his, of his life, blood just represents his life. With the riches of his life and his blood, he paid the account in full. Everybody that would put their hope in Jesus stands before Jesus today as someone whose account has been made whole. Perfect. You look at Isaac Foster. God looks at him and goes, no, oh, that's my son. I'm so proud of him. Would you look at him? Ramon, Ramon I go, yeah, but I'm married to him. Don't you know what he does? And God's going, ah, now mercy, it's covered it over. We can't even see it anymore. All we see that when we look at him from heaven is, oh, Isaac, come on. Now, and because his sin has been covered over, guess what happens? God's life is able to now come to the place of our greatest need in here and fill us. The Bible says in Peter that we have been filled with the riches of all that we need to live this life out in a godly way. We have his spirit as God's children. If you're here today and you've not been born again, this is what it means to be born again. Somebody's put their hope in Jesus and what he did to pay the debt. I'm a debtor to God. I have a, a, a... an account of sin I can never pay off. Jesus came into this world, I believe that, to live a life of perfection, to offer up his life as a substitution. His riches for my rags, I believe it. I put my hope in it. If you'll do that, guess what he does? He transforms you from the inside out because the record's been paid. Now his life comes inside out and you start to change. And the more you trust him, the more you become like him, the more merciful you become. Why? Because his spirit of mercy is inside of you. What you see in Jesus is supposed to be reflected in you. It's supposed to be reflected in me. Which brings me to my second question. All right, so who's paying the debt? Who's paying? Jesus. I hope you say Jesus today. Jesus. Jesus, thank you for paying that debt. But how do you know that that debt's been made real in you? Because it's one thing to say, yeah, Jesus, like I hope it covers me. And go on your way. The Bible says in, somewhere in Corinthians, it's one of Paul's letters, maybe it's the seventh chapter of the first book, he says something to this effect. He says that, that there's a repentance that leads to righteousness. And there's a worldly repentance that just leads to sorrow. So some people, some people, I've been guilty of this, maybe you have too, we, we've cried over things, but then we've gone straight back to him. Why? Maybe we don't want to be confronted with the consequence of what we've done. 
So it's like, oh, God, please have mercy on me because I don't want to lose my family. And God's going, I'm concerned for your family, but you've got a much deeper problem here. You've offended me. You're in jeopardy of losing me. What means more to you? Well, just get this thing right with my family, and I promise I'll love you the way that I'm supposed to. And he's going, no, no. First things first, repent. Understand, the offense is against me. But see, when we, we have a repentance that leads to sorrow, a worldly type of a repentance, we're like this guy. We, we receive this incredible debt cancellation, and then we go out and we remind ourselves of what people have done. Do you know what that person did to me? Do you know how terrible they are? And even if you're not telling people, maybe you, you cloak it better than some, but you're like that person. As soon as you see him, there, there's this thing that starts to stir inside of you. Just by show of hands, how many of you were like seriously offended and sinned against in 2022? Were the rest of you sleeping? <laughs> Are you kidding me? I want to follow many of you around and just stay close. How did that happen? Now, if I ask this question, everybody's going to put their hands up. Everybody has experienced incredible sin that's been imposed on them in their life. Is that true? Some of you are still not putting your hand up. I think you're sleeping with your eyes open. <laughs> so when we sin, God is wanting it to lead to a place where life is found. But when I've been sinned against and I begin to think of people that have done something to me, it can start to stir me. And it can start to stir me in a way where anger starts to... Anger, anger is just, it's a right expression towards something that's been done wrong. Like, God gets angry at things. Do you realize that? It says here, God gets angry at you and I as believers who say we've received life and then refuse to show that same life to other people. God gets angry at it. So it's not, anger is not a sin. It's what you do with it. If I take my anger and I turn it toward God and I give him what the issue is to me, then he helps me with it. But if I camp out on it, like, I'm not trusting God with this. I'm not letting this person off the hook. They did that to me. Do you know what my husband did to me? It is not happening. I am not. Like, I'm going to hold it over his head, and I'm going to make him jump through hoops because of what he's done. Fair game in a natural approach to life. But we're not living in a natural way. We're living spiritually. Because we say we've been changed by something so much greater, a standard that's so much better. And if I get angry and I start holding court over people's lives, eventually it leads me into a prison. How do I know today whether or not I've received this life? Some of you are in a prison right now. And even as I'm talking, you're, you're, you don't know what's happened. You're angry. It's stirring you up inside. I'm just telling you, you are holding on to something Jesus is asking you to give him. And you might be a Christian, but it's, it's, it's squashing this necessary thing that you need in your own life to be able to continue to function right before God. Because God says, listen, you're going to come to me and pray? It says this, Jesus said this, if you're going to go to your father and pray, you better make sure you're not holding on to anything in your heart. You got to let it go. That's why Jesus taught the disciples. He said this, forgive me my debts, just as I forgive those. There's an expectation. I need mercy, and I'm going to show mercy. I don't, I don't give mercy to get mercy. I've received mercy, so I'm able to impart it. How do you know if you've received it? If, if you're stirring today over things that have happened to you and you're not settled by it and it robs you of peace, then you probably have a problem with letting the thing go and being forgiving. Just saying. You've got to figure that out between you and Jesus. But that, that's the word of God. How do you know that you've actually gotten beyond it? 
There was a story, another story. Jesus, he's invited over to a Pharisee's house. The guy's name is Simon. He's invited over to Simon's house in the seventh chapter of, uh, maybe that's, uh, that's Matthew. No, that's Luke. Seventh chapter of Luke. There's a story in there. Simon is, he, he's saying, I want to know who this guy is. He's a Pharisee, so he's a teacher of the law. And he's an expert that's supposed to be like sizing Jesus up. And in sizing Jesus up, it's like, this guy really the Messiah? Like he's doing all these crazy miracles, but is he really who he says he is? So he brings him into his house. And when he comes into his house, he sits down with Jesus. And Jesus, as he's sitting there, has a woman behind him who comes. And she's got this alabaster jar of perfume. And she just starts to weep in the presence of this merciful God. She weeps and she gets down on her hands and her knees and she takes her hair. I don't even know how that's possible, but she takes her hair and as she's weeping, she, she washes Jesus' feet with her tears and she begins to wipe his feet because this guy, this Pharisee who should have known something about something and been hospitable and full of love when he invited Jesus into his house, he should have washed his feet. But because he's like pontificating and sitting in judgment on Jesus, He's like, oh, I'm not going to serve this guy. I'm not going to wash his feet. Whatever. He's just a country preacher. But he's sitting in the presence of Almighty God. This guy who's kind of holding court over Jesus doesn't even realize the mercy that's covering over him so that Jesus can sit there and talk to him. But this woman gets it, and she knows nothing about the law. All she knows is she has been up to her eyeballs in sin, and this Jesus would allow her to even draw near to him. She realizes this is special. This guy, his love, his ability to cover over is like nothing else, and so it breaks her, and she begins to love him, and she begins to wash his feet with her tears and her hair, and she pours perfume over him, and this guy goes, doesn't this so-called prophet know who's doing this? Jesus in his mercy, just, God, you're so dumb, but let me cover over you. You don't even get it. Let me tell you a story, Simon. Two people. One owes 500 denarii. One owes two. The guy that they owe the money to forgives them. Which one do you think is more grateful? Oh, the guy 500. And 500 denarii, by the way, is like a, a, a day's wage was a denarii. So two, day, two denarii are like two days wages. He's, he's equating. Somebody gets like a, over a year's salary just canceled. Who's going to be jumping? Who's going to be rejoicing? Who is going to be more grateful? Oh, obviously the 500 dude. He goes, right. You see, the one who's been forgiven much loves much. This guy actually thinks because he's like the person we were talking about, the religious person who's trying to earn his keep and he's self-righteous and he's, I do this and I do that and the law says this and I try to keep it. He doesn't even realize how far away from the law that he is. But now he's deceived and Jesus is saying, you're, you're just as much of a 500 as a two, but you actually think you're a two. That's why you showed me no love. See, when Jesus has made himself real to us, we're like that woman. Sometimes I sit here, and I'm going to do it right now. And this isn't for effect, but sometimes I get overwhelmed by the love of God. I know who I am. I know what Jesus has done for me. I got a microphone, but that doesn't make me special. I'm just, I've got my own mess, and God has helped me with it. And I think, oh, Jesus, you have been so merciful to me. And I might struggle with it like you, but I want to live in mercy toward other people. How can I hold anything against anyone after he's done so much? But to ask the third question, what do you do if you're an ingrate like I've been so many times in my life? Well, you got to get real with it. 
you got to actually square up to the fact that you are an ingrate. Don't like deceive yourself with, I know the Bible and I know, I, I know what my intention is supposed to be. Let, let's just talk about rubber meets road. Are you someone who delights in covering over another person's sin? When somebody sins against you, do you go talking to other people? Do you, do you like harbor issues with folks? Somebody's done something to you. Have you ever actually let the thing go? It's easier said than done, but you got to do it. And I'll be vulnerable. I'll tell you a little story from my own life. First time I read this passage of scripture, I literally shut the Bible. I'd gotten saved. I got saved. I read John 3 where it said you had to be born again. And I, what is that? And then I read about Jesus and what he did. And it made sense to me. Put my hope in him and he changed me. So I'm like, whoa, this thing, this Bible is alive. I got I to gotta read more about it. So I start reading through the pages of the Bible. And as I'm reading, I come to this passage. And as soon as I read it, I understand what it's saying to me. And I go, nope. I don't care what you're saying right now, God. I'm not doing that. In fact, when I read the story, I literally said this to God when I shut the Bible. This is a parable about my life that I've got some debt against you, 500, 300 million dollars, whatever the impossibility of it is, like that's my debt? And you're saying it's chump change? What I experienced growing up? No, it wasn't chump change. I lived it out. I cried it out. Are you kidding me? It's, it's a couple days worth of wages to you? Like, do you, not, do you not see my life? Do you not see my suffering? Do you not, did you not see all that played out? If you're all seeing and all knowing, doesn't that mean anything to you? And you're going to trivialize it like that? No, it made me angry, just being honest. You think less of me? Well, you're probably going to think less of me after I tell you the next story. So that went on for a couple of months. Well, a month, maybe more. And the life that I knew when I became a Christian, it hit me like, it hit me like a, a locomotive. And as soon as I shut that Bible, and as soon as God would say, open back the Bible, let's go back to where we left off. No, no, no. I, I got, it got worse and worse and worse, and I got more miserable and more miserable. And then I finally was like, you know what? Oh, I hate this. God, help me. Help me. Would you have mercy on me? Because I don't get, see, your word is true. You're, you're not a man that you should lie. What you say is actually true. What I think is deception. So I'm deceived in thinking my debt against you is a couple of days worth of wages. And what somebody has done to me is actually a couple of days worth of wages. And what I've done to you is hundreds of millions of dollars. Like I, I, I don't see it that way, but I'm open to, to being able to be taught, Lord. I, I, don't, I don't get it. All that I've been through has shaped me to see it that way, but my, my mind is twisted. I'm wrong. I'm off. Begin to help me, God, because I, I, I don't only not want to do it, but I, I don't even know how to straighten my twistedness out. And you know why sometimes we don't want to actually even go there? Because it's a control thing. If you've been hurt, we all have been. But when you've been hurt, somebody just moves on with their life. And what they've done, they leave with you and they carry on. But what they've done stays with you, if, unless you're going to be biblical. And you can try to sweep it under the carpet, but it's still there. You can try to bury it, but I promise you, people in your life who know you know when it comes up. It's there. Why, why do we not want to trust God with what it is that because we don't want to get hurt again. If I, if I give up and lose control of this, then that person might be better positioned to do it again. And I am nobody's 
I'm nobody's like doormat. It's not happening. That's one side of it. Another side of it might be, where's the justice of this? This person gets off the hook? This person just gets to go and they don't have to be held to an account for what they've done? Well, do you want to be held to an account for what you've done? Why, why do we so quick to say, oh God, be merciful to me when I've messed up. And when somebody sins against me, I want justice. I want blood. I want revenge. I want to grab somebody by the throat. I want to throw them in jail. I want to take care of it so that I feel like whatever disrespect was imposed on me, you see the value of my life because it matters. Now, having said that, we all have to get to a place where we surrender. But to surrender, you got to humble yourself and you got to start with, it's not outside of me. See, this guy comes out of his mess. He comes out, rather, of getting forgiven. And he immediately goes to what's been done to him. Instead of taking the advice of Jesus, you deal with the plank in your own eye first before you go to try to straighten anybody else out. Get yourself squared away. You know, the thing that I'm talking about that was so personal to me, my dad left my mother and I when I was 12 years old and went and started another family. And that was a really hard thing to deal with. Because growing up, I knew he didn't love me. And he never told me he loved me. He never spent any time with me. He didn't want anything to do with me. So there was a lot of anger there. But then when he left, I was like, game on. Like, this guy really hates me. And I actually kind of hate him now. I remember telling him, the irony of this is wild. I remember telling him, I said, the fact that your blood pumps through my veins is going to make me sick to my stomach for the rest of my days. I told him that. I was an angry guy. And I remember (laughs) the first time I had to go meet my stepmother. I was like, this is is the villain. Like, this woman, her name was Wanda. Called her Wicked Wanda. She... In my, in, in my mind, she like flew around on a little broom. <laughs> and so my mom goes, you got to go meet her. I'm not meeting this woman. I, I don't, I'll never talk to her in my life. No, you're going to go. You, 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 this is a relationship with your dad. Your sister's going to go. Everybody's going to go. You got to go. I'm not going. I hate her. I hate dad. So my mother goes, no, you're going to go. And let's just think of a a way that it can play out where it's not awkward. So my dad goes, hey, why don't you come with us? We'll go to the country club and we can play some tennis. And I go, no. I was like, you're going. And my sister's like, come on, Brian, it won't be that bad. My sister's name is Suzanne. So we we go and I am like, I am just angry the whole way. (laughs) Any tennis players in here? Anybody ever play tennis? Right? So when we get there, I size her up and I'm like... My dad goes, hey, you and Wanda are on the same team. And I go, good. I go, I'm serving. And my sister looks at me, she's like, and I go, give me the balls. My dad looks at me and he's like, what is he going to do? Because I was, I was wild. And I go, I'm, I'm going to serve. I go, here, Wanda, you get to the net. And I get over here. I bounce it a couple of times. I make an X on the back of her head. I swing through with all that I have. I missed her head, but I hit her butt. There was such a sense of satisfaction that I had, but the anger that was in me, that's the least of it. I I was saying to the church earlier, my goodness, I really, I had some serious issues, and they were revenge. They were anger. They were, I want somebody to feel the pain that I've experienced. 
And when I found Jesus and I found the hope of it, and he came and it was like whatever love I didn't get, whatever my issues were, his love was so sweet. I forgot about it until I read the passage of scripture that said I had to forgive. And then when I read it, I had to stop and look at myself in the mirror and go, you're really ugly. Like there is all kinds of nastiness that's inside of you. It's not, it's not what they've done. It's who you are. Look at what you've done to deal with the life you were given. Sin is sin. It doesn't matter if you're, you're cheating on somebody's family and you, you, you wreck a family or you just make a choice, I'm not forgiven. All of it separates you from God and all of it is the same to Jesus. He had to die for it. And when I humbled myself and I had to look and go, oh, you mean I'm, I, whatever somebody else has done, let me, let me deal with me first. God, I see how ugly I am. God began to show me. And I started replaying things like I just told you, the story I just told you. I started going down this list of, oh my goodness, there is some seriously wicked stuff inside of me. God, thank you that that's what you bled out for. Thank you that you've forgiven me of it. Thank you that it doesn't stand before you anymore. And as I reflected on who Jesus is and what he was able to do for me, I couldn't look at somebody else, a sinner just like me, and hold court on him. Imagine what you do when you hold court over another person's life. Jesus loves them. And I know there's pain associated with them. But he loves them, just like he loves you. He's not a respecter of people. He came into the world to give himself in a way that would position them not to receive judgment. The Bible says that judgment is God's strange act. Mercy is what he, he longs for. It's what he delights in. And in judgment, when we sit and judge somebody, we say, Jesus, all that you went through, you're not entitled to hold court over their life. I am. You, me, a sinner. I'm going to hold court over Jesus and say, you don't really adjudicate well, so why don't you get off the throne that you earned and let me sit down and hold court over this person's life because I'll do a better job than you. Really? Just know, Jesus said, with the measure you use, so it will be measured against you. I got one clap in the back. Yeah, and I suppose that's actually kind of a, a scary thought, right? should be a scary thought because we do it more frequently than we probably know. God is calling us today to live in mercy toward one another. And I, even as I'm speaking, I'm reminding myself as I'm talking, like, oh, my goodness, I need more of Jesus in this next year. I need him to help me to be more like him. But here's the, here's the truth of the matter. When I trusted him, he forgave me of my sins. He gave me his spirit. And his spirit is the spirit of mercy. It's the spirit of Jesus. And just as Jesus came into the world to want to demonstrate and show mercy, he even considered the pain and the suffering that he would endure as something that was a joy because of what it would produce on the other side of covering sins over. I pray today, even as we think about this, that that becomes real to us, but real to us in a way where we get out of the way and allow his life to come out because that's the life that he wants to come out. It's not a life that you produce. It's not a life that I produce. We don't earn it. We've just been given it, but we can restrict it by making it more about us than him. And when we make it about him, he so sweetly comes and he so sweetly gives us what we need. And I want you to leave here 
hopefully different than you came in, not just in what you've been reminded of, maybe learned for the first time, but someone who's positioned in the days to come to just delight in what mercy has done and covering you over because of that, you've got nothing but love made alive. That's what we were made for. Love is the fuel of life. What gets in the way of it? Me experiencing it, me giving it, me. Can we get out of the way of it today? Can we get away out of our can we get out of the way of ourselves today? I want to do this as I was talking. I know that this is a message for all of us, but God, I've heard truth. I thank you that Jesus is wants to pay the price. And I want that to be made alive in me so that I don't live out of bitterness and in prison, but that I live a lifestyle of mercy. If you're struggling with that right now, I'm just going to ask you to stand up. In fact, let's do this. All of us, let's stand up right now. If you're here today and perhaps you've never really allowed God to cover over your sin, you've never been born again, and you know the things that I was saying in your heart are true. Jesus calls each one of us out to respond to that. And you can respond where you are. But I would encourage you. We want to be able to get to know you. We want to be able to pray with you. If, if you need that kind of covering, you've never experienced what it means to be born again, and you want to trust Jesus with all that he did on the cross to cover over your sin, we're going to ask you right now to respond and come forward. But beyond those people... There's many that are here today that as I was speaking, you're convicted. Like, I I know I'm not the most merciful person. I I know Jesus. I've experienced it. But maybe even like I was trying to encourage you with my life, I'd been changed. But I really hadn't completely submitted and given him the things that I was still holding on to. If that's you and you want today to be a day where you get beyond that, I'm going to ask you to do this. Why don't you come forward? We're going to pray with you. The pastors are going to be down here. You need to respond in faith. A sermon has no value unless you do something with it. The only value a sermon has is by engaging it and trusting in it. I'm nobody. This church is no place. But the words that have been proclaimed are life. And if you trust them, they'll change you. God wants to change you. He wants to cover over whatever challenges are. He wants to help you free up from holding on, get you out of the prisons as a Christian you can be in. Got to break out. If that's you, you want to see God do something fresh in your heart today. I'm going to ask you to come forward. I thank God for the people that have come forward. You know, it's easy to live as a Christian in deception and think just because you come to church and you love God that you're actually walking like him in the way that he says we're supposed to. Examining our faith means taking a hard look at who Jesus is. And is that true in my life? Am I like him? No shame for those that have come forward. We can't give something we haven't received. So they're standing here to be able to receive just a fresh understanding, a fresh impartation of grace because of the mercy that they need. Father, I thank you for them right now. I thank you for their lives. I thank you that you know each one by name. I thank you that you know everything they've been through and the challenges and the difficulties of not focusing on others but themselves so that in trusting you, God, they can receive what you long to give. 
fresh impartations of your love. God, I thank you tonight that your mercy has covered them over. As they stand here, maybe some have to repent like I did. As they repent, God, I pray that you would not just forgive them, but that you would cleanse them as you did me of unrighteousness. The things that we do, the positions we hold, holding court over people's lives and in ourselves, keeping ourselves in a place of imprisonment where others, because of what they did so long ago, could continue to control us. God, you've come that we would know freedom. Help them to be free today. As they experience your mercy, help them to know freedom. Pray that you would do this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now here's the truth, and this is a prayer I'm going to pray for everybody else. Do you know that God actually touched me and he changed me in a way as they've taken time right now to look to God and to ask him to help them. He, he just imparted grace in their life. That's what faith does. God responds to faith. And so he's going to give what they need, just like he did me. Do you know, um, not too long after I had to pray that prayer before God, I got in a car and I drove to see my dad and his wife. Now I had no relationship with him. I actually up to that point of God breaking through and being merciful to me and giving me just love. I, uh, I didn't want to be around him, but I knew I was called to love him. And so I jumped in a car and I drove eight hours. I never had a really any, spent any time with my dad up to that point. I drove eight hours and I, I showed up on his doorstep and he and his wife and I, I said, listen, I'm here today. They go, why are you here? I go, well, I'm here because I love you. And they were like, yeah, right. And I go, no, no, I'm here because I love you because there's something that God's done. Jesus has changed me. He's filled my heart with love. And that has meant filling my heart with love for you. And so I drove all this way because I want to I make sure that as far as it relates to me, I want to clear this thing up. I was ornery, I was rotten, and I did terrible things to both of you out of my anger and out of my hurt. <laughs> And my stepmother, she looked and she goes, yeah, like you were the incarnation of evil. And I said, well, listen, I've driven this far because I know that. And I sinned against you. And I'm asking you now, would you forgive me? Because I haven't been an easy kid to love. I'm sorry. Forgive me for it. They both broke down. They started to cry. And my stepmother actually said to me at the the time, she said, you know, I've never really believed much about God up until today. To see you be sincere and respond in love to me the way that you are, and you're asking us to forgive you when you were the kid, like, there has to be a God. See, that's the beauty of receiving mercy. It becomes real to us, and it becomes real to us in a way that we're freely able to give it. Now, I want to pray for everybody else. The rest, rest of you didn't come forward, but you need this just as much as I do, just as much as the people down here do. God is calling you if you've put your hope in Jesus. The young people that are here from Atlanta, your school needs, they need, young people need to know something about mercy and they need it to be expressed from you. Doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter how young you are, if you're a Christ follower, then you are called to be like him, living lives of mercy. The world needs that. What grabs the attention of a world that, that takes from us and, and hurts us, but then a, a person who's filled with mercy, it shows them that's not of this world. What's of this world is you're going to respond in kind. But when they see somebody respond in that kind of mercy, covering over what they've done and loving them, it makes them realize there's something behind this. 
You know, my dad eventually came to faith. It didn't just make him cry in the moment. He actually died a man of God because of the mercy of God. God, I'm asking you now for the rest of us. Come on, can we just put our hands up? It's a sign. The Bible says, I wish people everywhere would lift up holy hands. You might come from a background where we don't lift up hands. That's weird. No, it's biblical. It's biblical. Lift up holy hands and pray. That's God's admonition to us. And it's a sign that we need him. It's a sign of humility. It's a sign of surrender. Jesus, we need you today. We need you today. You're all that we need. God, you're everything that we need. And Lord, we're asking you, We're thanking you, first of all, for your mercy, for your loving kindness, for your desire and delight to cover us over, to give us mercy new this morning. God, right now, even as we call on you to give us more mercy, we thank you for who you are. But God, out of gratitude, we ask you, would you make this word become alive to us? Would you meet all of us in a fresh way so that when we walk out the door, God, we walk out as agents of your mercy, as people who live lifestyles of mercy, because we're going to be sinned against when we get in the car. We're going to be sinned against when we get on the train. We're going to be sinned against at our work tomorrow, through this week. It's just what it is to live in a fallen world. But would you so fill us with your grace because of your mercy that love comes out, a desire to cover over, a delight in doing so, even through tears, Do this, Jesus, that your name might be honored the way that it should through our lives. And we all say to that, amen. Put our hands together. Let's thank God for what he's going to do in our lives. Listen, God bless you as you leave. If you want to give something as you walk out, there'll be collection baskets outside or you can give online. We're going to be here Tuesday night to pray. We invite you to come back. We love you. If there's anything we can do to help you, we'll be down here at the front to pray with you. God bless you. Have a great week.